Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. The amazing Patty Armbruster is going to offer the most incredible composting class you'll ever take completely online Saturday, July 18th. 2020 it's only 37 dollars, and you will get a seat you will get a copy of the replay you will get to pick her brain question and answers um we are just gonna rock the composting how to do composting the most efficient effective and best way to improve the results in your garden today yeah there we go all right Welcome to the Green Organic Garden Podcast. It is Friday, June 26, 2020, and Patty Armister talked me into doing a video <laughs> live. So here we are doing video, but she's going to do some screen share, and I'm going to turn it over to her so she can tell us all her amazing golden seeds. So welcome to the show, Patty. Welcome back to the show, Patty. Well, yes. Thank you, Jackie. I'm, I'm just elated that we uh, are going to get to have a conversation again and share with whomever will be willing to listen to us. And so super exciting. Well, cool. Well, you always have tons of awesome stuff to share. And listeners know I posted about um, you coming to visit. I haven't posted the advice you gave me, but I talked about it. Like, well, maybe I recorded it it was when we met with Robin in Whitefish, actually, I recorded it on the way home. So I haven't done an episode about you coming to visit. So I guess listeners, you'll hear that soon. <laughs> yeah, that'll be good. But in the meantime, what are we going to talk about today? Oh, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. Awesome. Um, for one thing, it's a here in Eastern Montana, it is like the most phenomenal growing season you've ever seen or I've ever seen. And I've been here since 1990 to give you an idea that, and every single season has been different, right? But this year, this spring has just been unbelievable. The plants can't ask for anything more than what they've received this year. So they're just looking amazing and producing. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited that I've been able to eat kale um, out of my garden for the last month and Previous to that, I was eating it out of the passive solar greenhouse at the school. And so my goal is to eat kale year-round grown in Montana. So that's what I want to be doing. So um, I'm getting closer and closer to it. I'm just keep trying to tweak it, figure it out. When do I need to plant it? Where does it need to be in the wintertime? And how to get it done. But we're getting really close. I had a plant at the school garden in the passive solar this year and um that plant i was harvesting it in march yeah and little kids and i planted it in september i was just gonna say that when did you plant it if you were eating mm -hmm. it in march right in september and so we, we i planted it as seedling and then they transplanted it into these containers which we tried five different um varieties when we did that and we only had the one variety make it all the way through and be where that I could harvest it. I do have another variety, which is the Red Russian, that is um, still producing right now. But I wasn't able to harvest it um, for the three or four months that I was harvesting this, um, this curly kale that, I, that is more of a cold hardy kale. So the ones with the real crinkly leaves, not the dinosaur kale, but the... Uh, the real crinkly leaves 
are and you know and they're um they're kind of um thicker um cell plants so they 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 really it's done really well now it's producing seeds so i'll be collecting seeds hopefully sharing them down the road with uh, the good seed company so awesome so I found like we planted arugula seeds with my students on like March 2nd because it was like right before school we had to go home and I did send them home with the kids and those arugula seeds like that I took home that I planted in a container didn't really grow any faster that whole time to the ones that I ended up putting in the ground outside and then those ones took off they both like I just felt like maybe it was too soon or trying to plant them in the container I don't know what I did wrong they didn't do very well, well sometimes it's just um timing and sometimes it's the depth of the container like these are in uh, a pot that's probably 20 inches deep these these kale were so it was um kind of mimicking and we planted other plants in with them so in the beginning it was a, a poly planting which i promote right diversity all the way around as much diversity as you can put in and so um, they had diversity through the fall, but then when it got really cold, those, those guys got, um, fall out of the system, but, um, yeah, it makes a big difference. Um, I think that the plants really know how many daylight hours is going on out there. And so they, they are triggered by that. They're doing all kinds of communication that we have, um, just barely, barely starting to learn a little bit about. And so that's what I've been honing in on, especially when it comes to, some of the pests in the garden, like for example, the our um, favorite friends are slugs, which I've been really um, working on dramatically the last couple of years to try to figure out how how do we live with them because they are one of the um, key decomposers, right? So it isn't like we want to annihilate them. What I want to do is figure out how I can get in balance to live with them. And so anything that finishes out its uh, life cycle in the soil, which they do, I think can be controlled in the soil. So that's where I've been attacking them um, along with our flea beetles. Our favorite friends are flea beetles, but attacking them with, a, with beneficial nematodes. And so my population of slugs this year is like hardly nothing compared to what it was a year ago at this time. And so I know I'm gaining, um, but I'm going at it in multiple, multiple ways, not just the nematodes, but the nematodes I think are really helping to keep the population reduced. So, and those plants, so, you know, you'll have one plant right side by side of another, and one plant is viciously getting attacked. And it looks fine. It doesn't look any different than the one next to it. The one next to it is not getting attacked. And so that plant that's getting ate is sending out signals to come eat me. And so we got to figure out, okay, how do we get this plant to be happier or healthier, which I think a lot of times it's healthier, to not send those signals. Because if it sends those signals, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to be able to stop the attack. And so I've been trying to use, um, like I'll break the lower leaves off of, especially the cabbages. They, they just love cabbage. So break the lower leaves off the cabbages, especially the ones that are touching the ground. They're already getting hammered anyhow by either slugs or other pests. And so then I'll lay them in a little pile. 
the second those plants are not attached to the plant, they're sending signals too, usually through chemical signals, um, that they need eight and decompose. And so decomposers come in, which is the slug is going to be the first responder. And so they're going to go get on those leaves. So I just take a bucket with a little bit of water in it, take those leaves and dunk them into the bucket. And for some reason in nature or God did not allow a slug to swim, right? Most every creature on earth swims, but not a slug. They cannot do that. So it's a quick, easy way to get rid of them. They're dead. Um, there would be a few trying to crawl out of the bucket. I just give them a good little swirl and they're, they're out of there. And so that's been working really well um, versus, you know, handpicking them or whatever. But so, yeah, I don't well, awesome, because that's one of the biggest questions I get repeatedly is, what do I do about bugs and pests? And slugs are like at the top of one of yeah. those lists. Like I hear a lot of people yep. ask about slugs. And so uh, I think planting a lot of diversity really helps. Um, like I have uh, um, kale planted kind of in pods right now where there's three and four, maybe five plants together um, for the cabbages, kale beets, stuff like that. So that I've got other plants in there amongst them, uh, flowering plants. I've noticed that uh, none of the slugs like anything to do with the garlic or onions. And they seem to stay away from those beds better than the others. And so I think figuring out some combinations of what to be planting is going to be helpful for gardeners instead of when we plant one straight row of something and a and that plant sending a signal for the pest to come in, there's nothing a gardener is going to be able to do outside of using chemicals that actually is just a Band-Aid. It didn't fix the problem. It might have stopped the problem for that right then, but it's not going to solve the issue. You're just asking for it. So we got to start thinking, okay, how do we do this different? Okay, if I plant, I plant a few kale here and a few... Um, cabbages and other locations. The the slugs love the radishes. So does the flea beetle. So I use the radish and the mustards as a trap crop. Plant them far away from where you want to put your key cabbages in kale. I haven't noticed them on a kohlrabi, which is funny because they're kind of the same family. But but anyhow, plant that trap crop way away from them, which you draw those pests to those other plants, especially if you water, if you're going to water overhead, you water your trap crop overhead. Do not water the rest of the plants overhead. That's going to really pull the slugs over in that direction because they just love a damp, wet environment, even though they can't swim. <laughs> so that will pull them that way, though, and away from your your target crop. But I just really think a lot of gardeners um, need to get um, to the three-year mark with their um, no-till and regenerative practices because when you do, it's like the tipping point. Um, when you get to that point, your plants are so healthy and so strong and sending out positive signals. And they have a defenses of microbes all around them that you don't have any pests then. And so we got to get to that point. And so a lot of people maybe... Um, like for instance, I had a gardener that was going on the no-till. They were going pretty good. They were in a year and a half of no-till. And something went wrong. Their, their clover winter killed. So they had clover in their walkways. 
And so they decided to till it instead of just reseed it. And when they did, they just opened up the box to start over again oh. because now the, the flea beetles have come in and just literally wiped out their whole garden, even green beans and all, because they had to serve the predator that was going to eat the flea beetles' eggs in the soil. So when we till or disturb that soil, we're killing out beneficials that would have helped us with most of these pests that if they live out their life cycle in the soil. So that would be our slugs and our flea beetles, which are our two biggest enemies in, in Montana that I've discovered for gardeners is those. So if we can not disturb that soil and figure out ways that we can um, do it, like I've been buying these nematodes, right? I'm creating nematodes in my compost, but I buy these um, nematodes that are beneficial nematodes online that will eat flea beetle eggs, right? So that's that's what I've been doing. And then I plant, I go ahead and put them out twice a year um, because your flea beetles have two life cycles in one growing season. A lot of people don't understand that either. So they, they go through a small one in the beginning, then when they go lay their eggs in the soil, they lay masses amounts of eggs and then they they reproduce. Now you have masses, numbers of flea beetles come late July or August from that first hatch. So if we can have the nematodes in the soil that makes in the sense. spring, early in the spring to keep those numbers somewhat in control. And then another set of um, nematodes put in to get that summer hatch really will keep the numbers down. Like right now I have flea beetles in my um, garden, but you couldn't detect it by looking at any plants. You'd have to almost just really, really look for a flea beetle to find a flea beetle in my garden right now. So to give you an idea, here I can show you a picture. Maybe we'll try this. Um, oh. Well, I'll tell you, I scored a um, billboard tarp from like they were taking this billboard down on the side of the highway and I just pulled over and was like, hey, what are you doing with that? And the guys gave it to me. And Mike did half of the mini farm in tarps this year. And it was so amazing how good that worked. And so you were doing it to uh, suffocate out the plants that you solarize? He did it to, um, like, for the places, like, where he was going to plant the green beans that can't go in after frost. Like, usually that area would be just covered in weeds. And it would just be, like, this huge ordeal, like you know everything else that's growing from march till june but then he couldn't put the green beans in which this year i don't know if you put him in at the first of june it seemed early like maybe even the last week of may but whatever to just be able to pull those tarps off yeah. and not have to hardly do anything like he maybe turned it over the broad fork a little but just like to not have anything growing in there from last winter like usually in the spring it would just be covered in weeds that he would ha end up having to right. dig up so I thought that worked. Yeah, awesome that works year. really, really well for both market gardens and small gardens. If a small gardener knows, okay, I'm having grass that invade in this garden or whatever, man, get it tarped. And I like to tarp it when that plant, that grass is still growing, right? So if you tarp it in the fall, but when the plant's still doing photosynthesis, it's still trying to grow up above. And, and and gather sunlight and so you tarp it then it's it's gonna really knock things back really really hard so yeah that's a good nice. idea so i don't know can you see this 
This is, is that your this kale? Is some of the kale, um, kohlrabi, and broccoli, and then of course it's inter interplanted with uh, phacelia, which is called bee friend, is its nickname, and the bees just love it. And then in the way background there is a peony back there, but on the fence is a honeycrisp apple that I'm going to be training to go flat across that fence, so it won't won't be taking sunlight up from oh. these beds. But this bed is a four foot by 16 bed and it's got a whole row of celery on the back side of it. And it's already produced a lot of food and it doesn't have any pests, no pests of any kind whatsoever going on in there because of the, it looks yeah, because of the diversity and, and, you know, people think in, you know, all of my lifetime of up until the last 10 years, I was always taught, and my grandparents, parents, myself, always thought, okay, the plants are competing, that I need to have just broccoli here or just kale here. But that's just really false. <laughs> that is so far from true. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, the plants are helping each other. And the more diverse of plants you have, the more they help each other. They're not only helping each other um, with pests, but they're helping each other with nutrients and water. And so they're sharing um, through the roots and the fungi. And it's in, in the organic matter that it's just amazing. And so, yeah, I can't stress that enough that we need to be planting diversity. Uh, let's see, what else have we got here? So this is another... Uh, Sorry for the sunlight. I took these right before we got on the computer here, but um, I have some perennial plants in here. Uh, this is perennial grasses. There's two different kinds of grasses there in front of the screen. One is our blue bunch wheatgrass, which is our state grass. Just awesome grass, but really um, getting to be hard to find out on the range because we've overgrazed it. And the next grass too at the taller one is actually a native grass too and it's um basin basin rye grass and so both grasses are um benefiting the bees the bees spend quite a bit of time in grass which i don't know exactly why but i think they do go after the pollen when the when the when the flowers are blooming we don't always notice you know, I was just out in the mini farm with Mike this morning and walked by this like Timothy that was as tall as me. And when I walked by the pot, it was like, it was like a wave of smoke yes. almost yeah. or something like the pollen was just so thick. I was like, what yep, was that? Yeah, <laughs> yep. the grasses are being very happy right now. But they also are a perennial um, plant. So they're putting out root exudates, which feed the soil microbes. And so the more photosynthesis this plant can do, the more food there is going into the soil to feed the soil food web. And so it just makes an incredible positive circle. You know, and if I had been, if I'd seen this picture when I was young, I would have thought, oh, those grasses are taking up all the energy and all the water. But that's not really, that's not true. Oh. And these are bunch grasses. It's very important that you put bunch grasses in your garden. Don't put um, rhinomus ones that are going to trail with their root system. Those are ones that are our enemies and we're trying to fight out. We don't want those kind. Um, those would be bro smooth brome and um, western wheatgrass and our favorite friend crabgrass. Those plants, those grasses, you definitely don't want in a garden. 
nor do you want crested wheatgrass. But but these two grasses, and I've got a few other bunch grasses that are native that I give to the Native Plant Center there in Whitefish that are fantastic. And they make a nice screen too. They're, I'm trying to make it look like there's different rooms. And so I got a couple of these uh, basin rye grasses over there beyond that first trellis that kind of make a compartment. So it kind of changes what's behind the door, you know. So when we give a garden tour, it's going to look pretty cool. Cool. What a great idea. Is that a sunflower? Yes, right that is a sunflower. And I plant branching sunflowers because they, they, they give, um, you know, a lot more flowers. And as we pick more them, that's kind of pick and come so that we get more and more flowers off of them. But the, each sunflower is, however many seeds is in that sunflower, those are all flowerettes. So each one of those need to be pollinated. And there's literally hundreds of pollinators on a sunflower that we can hardly even see without a microscope or at least a handheld one to see, oh my gosh, there's all kinds of life inside the head of this sunflower. And so when you just plant branching sunflowers, you're given all kinds of um, insects, a place to live that wouldn't be there without that flower. So yeah, I've got them kind of stationed around the yard. Um, over This is on my east, the east side of my yard, which is the majority of my yard. But on, the, on the, my north and west side of the yard is extremely hot and brutal hot and dry compared to the rest of my yard. And so I planted um, branching sunflowers in groups of two and three to create sunscreens for other plants. So all the way through that west side of the garden, there's these different little breaks of sunflowers that will help the plants to the east from that west sun of coming in there and beating, just beating those plants to death and drying out the soil and everything else. So those sunflowers really help with that. They help with the wind break. Is that your afternoon sun yes, that's so definitely. hot in the, in yep, the west? Yep, the afternoon right? sun. And you know on the seed packet where it says full sun, people think that means yeah. full sun. It really means that plant needs eight hours of sun a day. <laughs> and so unfortunately on this west side of my house, they're getting um, full sun all but about two hours of the day. <laughs> and in Montana in, on June 26th, yes. which is like the fourth day you know we were just on the longest day of the year that means it's like sunny out for 12 hours or more than that maybe even exactly and it's just literally it's too much and so those plants um some of those plants depending on what the plant is over there will start to 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 look like they're wilting in the afternoon they're not wilting for water they're just shutting down to cool off and to save themselves so a lot of gardeners will go out there and water when the plant does that. And that, that is really almost the last thing you should ever think about doing is those plants are, are taking care of their own self. And the last thing they need is water. They just need some time. And if you could give them a little bit of shade, <laughs> it would really help them out a lot. And so this garden has only been watered um, twice this year. Now, granted, we have had a lot of, and the rest of it's just yep. rainwater. Just rainwater. Just been, We've had a, yeah, a lot we of have nice had a rains. lot of rain in Montana this year. But 
what's happened is that I'm five, six years into the snow dig garden in this part of the garden. And the organic matter is, I sent a test in this year, which I've never done before. I sent a test in and it was 5.6 organic matter in this garden. So yeah, nice. so it's like a sponge. It is holding moisture. So I bought a, a, a moisture meter. You just kind of, it's a probe, you just stick in the ground. And so I'm relying on that to tell me if I need to water or not. Because um, oh. even my flower pots, I'll stick that meter in. Because I do deep watering when I water. So I give everything a really good um, watering when I do water. And so I stick that meter in for at least a week. I don't have to water, even in a 24 inch pot. So I'm not having to water because I deep watered and we need to, we just seem to surface water. So when we surface water, we're causing surface roots and we're also causing that plant to be reliant on us to give it a little shot of water every day. And so when you don't do that and you deep water, right? If I was to dig a hole in this garden, I would find moisture all the way down. And then when I do water, I water for a couple hours where it's going to get an inch or more of rain or sprinkler or whatever. Make sure that much water goes down so that you've got deep water. So that that's causing these roots of these plants to go super deep in the ground instead of um, being shallow, puny rooted. So I, my theory is I want this garden to work for me and not me work for it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And so far it's, it's working well. Of course it is all mulch too, right? That's one of the principles of regenerative agriculture is mulching. And so everything is mulched. What are you mulching? Uh, different stuff. This, uh, this four bed got a wood mulch, which I'll, I'm not going to do that again. It was it was a mulch that I got from a guy that he's been making compost, but it, it's super fine. And it... Does that make it like... It doesn't blow, wind? but it, it it also, it repels water. So that soils can, and soils and wood can oh. get hydrophobic. Hydro meaning water phobic, scared. So it's, mm -hmm. a, it's actually a waxy coat that the bacteria have put on the plant material, organic material, or soil to hold themselves in place. And so when it gets hydrophobic, it just repels all water. And you can't get water to go in. And it takes several waterings to get the water to start going in. And so I don't like that at all. So this bed, um, this very front one that we can see, those are carrots in there. I'll be taking some of that material back off this fall and putting my own compost back on. And then I'll mulch it with alfalfa hay. So I like alfalfa hay because most most farmers are um, trying to harvest alfalfa hay for high protein. So they're cutting it when it's on, in early bud stage and has lots of leaves on it. And so super high protein. It's got a lot of nutrients in that hay. You know, in fact, humans take alfalfa for vitamins. We don't even know it, but a lot of vitamins we consume have alfalfa in it and so alfalfa is fantastic for the garden and so i've been mulching with that in most all these beds had alfalfa on them during the winter i think mike's been putting like alfalfa meal like in the 
like when he digs the hole to put the tomato plant or the eggplant or whatever he's planting like in the ground he puts like a little scoop of alfalfa meal to boost the nitrogen, yep, nitrogen and your nutrients. Does that your potassium both will be boost with the with alfalfa so it's a good amendment but this is feeding this is sorry like feeding the microbes for them to take those nutrients down in the soil and get them soluble and ready for plants and so I'm letting those microbes do that, converting for us. And then uh, if there's too much mulch in the spring, then I'll pick up that hay and I'll use it around the potatoes. So the potatoes are um, mulched with alfalfa hay. And then as they get taller, then I'll put more of it up around the, the branches of the plant to make it um, sturdier and, and want to grow more leaves. Mike was mulching his potatoes today. He's almost got that whole one side of nice. the farm done. Yeah, it's going to be a good year for potatoes. And I've seen in every garden I've went to, there's people planted more than normal. It's good. We need to have a, we need to be waking up here. We need to respond. So that's all great that we're responding. Here's another view of, this is looking from, West looking back to the south. I love that. And those are grapes. Um, there's three plants there, and it's on a cattle panel trellis that was a 16 foot panel, and then we bent it. My son and I bent it into this arson. He drove steel stakes in the ground for it. And so this, this is King of the North, and it is just loaded with grapes every single year and yeah it's uh super happy this year so does that take a lot of water like i've we have grapes that mike tried to grow grapes over that like where mm -hmm. we were sitting and just they've never really i feel like we just don't water them enough and i don't know it just hasn't worked well right. i don't water this it's like amazing and that's you just took that picture yeah, took this, this morning this morning well right before 11 o'clock right before do you do the deep water? Wait, what'd you say? You I only do, do deep watering and, but I'm, I'm giving everything in the whole garden. I'll give them some worm castings and some homemade compost and some kelp and fish emulsions if they need nitrogen, right? So a lot of my plants right now aren't showing any nitrogen needs. So there, there's no reason to put the fish in then. But if they do need nitrogen, which early in the spring I do, right? Soils are cold. Nitrogen hasn't gotten where it's soluble to the plants yet. So you do need it then. Early in the spring, you'd always put the fish in. But this time of year, I'm not needing to put the fish in. And so I use that. I just put it on with a watering can because you can backpack or spray it on. But I have trouble with it always plugging up because my, my compost have a lot of nematodes in it. And so, and microarthropods, all kinds of really cool stuff. So I, it's easier to just drench it on. So I just been using a water can. So that means that these leaves haven't been getting it, but they'd probably be better off if I did put it on leaves too. But I'm drenching it on the soil and the lower part of the plants and stuff when I put it on. And I do that once a week. So. With the fish emulsion? No, the. Wait, the worm castings in the oh kelp. the worm castings right yep sorry 
and then I use the fish if the plants show nitrogen, right? So if the plants are okay, being right, stunted right. or if they've got any um, yellowing to their leaves, then I give them fish or early in the spring. You need the nitrogen early in the spring. You know, the old timers would say, oh, we're, we're not getting any plants to grow and we need a good lightning storm. And I'm like, lightning storm? What's that got to do with plants? You know, so the lightning actually causes the the bonds, the chemical bonds to break and release the nitrogen in the soil. And so, and it happens with warmer soil temperatures too. And so when your soils are cold, then you need to probably be thinking, I need to be putting some fish or alfalfa on, um, cottonseed meal, stuff like that, that was high protein to be able to get that nitrogen boost that those plants are needing. But um, the soil biology will do that for us when they get woke up too. So I've got enough biology in my soil that I don't, I don't think I'm in any need of nitrogen. But What else did I take? I took this picture. We already looked at that. These other pictures are going to go over the buffalo. So I just come back from here. This is a, a, a regenerative greenhouse. And so these guys were going to put in an organic greenhouse and they couldn't get any help from the normal um, extensions in our area and stuff and as to how and what to do. So they met me and we got together and decided that we would, we would do it more regeneratively. And so that means we're trying not to have any inputs, right? We, we made their soil on site. They had commoner and cattails and wood chips, and we blended those together. And they have a lot, they're on a lake. They have a lot of fishermen. So I says, you get all your fishermen buddies to put fish in this pile. And so they added a lot of fish to that pile when we made our compost. And then they used that for their soil. So these beds really don't even have soil in them. We did um, put wood in the bottom of the planters. So like firewood and long branches in the bottom of these planters because that's a kind of like hugo culture yeah it's like a hugo culture but it's in a bed um and it works it's like so a pretty culture. look at that yeah we don't have to water near as often as you would in a traditional greenhouse they did add uh reg wiggler worms to every bed and so, how tall are those are those like hip high or are they two feet high i can't tell they're how tall they are. they're a just over knee high so 24 inches maybe yeah about 24 inches the beds are and what's growing in there those look like are those blue flowers on the right or is that something yeah else? they is are blue kale? flowers those are borge it is borge yep and the, the it was taller than my head today i'm like i should just take a picture of this borge plant i mean it was just so big and so unbelievable but um we got them in there just for the beneficials and this is the first year we've tried to do it without buying bees. You know, in the past, they've been buying bumblebees to be able to make sure that we can get the tomatoes and cucumbers to pollinate. But this year, we're going cold turkey. They planted two full beds to nothing but flowers. And I've got a few flowers in other beds, too. But, um, yeah, everything is getting pollinated um, extremely well and, and it's being highly productive. So got another shot here. This is from um, the first year, actually, of the greenhouse running. 
And so this shot on the right hand side here, that's, I was up in the rafters trying to pick tomatoes when I decided, I'm gonna take a picture of this. <laughs> uh, it's the only place I've ever worked that you have to have a extension ladder to be able to harvest tomatoes and cucumbers from. <laughs> oh, it looks but, so lush and just like, it reminds me of like walking in a botanical garden. Like I can almost smell it and just right. feel like that. Yes, yes. And those were way petunias, so there's only two plants there in that. But look how big they are. Yeah. And the nasturtiums, I didn't take a picture of a nasturtium, but I, sh I should have took a picture today. There were some double nasturtiums in there, and one plant oh. covers the whole end of a planter without any problem. It's just unbelievable amount of flowers. And, and those are such good companion plants. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been looking for companion plants for my strawberries and blueberries but like every time i go to a companion plant website they're like nasturtiums and marigolds nasturtiums and marigolds nasturtiums and marigolds yes and i like trailing nasturtiums so i unless i'm planting a border and don't have room for a trailing nasturtium i plant trailing nasturtiums and there used to be two varieties i've been having trouble finding but one variety lately and so we are going to try to start saving some seed from the ones we are growing because some of them will trail a good seven, eight foot long trail on nasturtium. So I thought it would be really cool if we put them in a planter, but I, I won't do that because they would need to be watered every day. And if we put one in the rafter, you know, and had it trail down, I thought that would look really cool, but it would require a lot more water. So we haven't done that, but they do sprout. In a, in a greenhouse, we run them alongside the bed. As a, we had them go underneath some tomatoes last year, and um, and they they just reroot all along the 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 trail. That like wow, and they self seed. So we don't have to. We've not had to buy any. Um, we're not had to buy any borage. Um, the bee friend, the facilia, it's self seeding. The sweet alyssum you see in the center there is self seeding. And so as long as we don't disturb that soil, we get these plants to be back. Or if we put in too much mulch, then we, we will sup, we'll, we'll take them out that way. But we've been trying to only put an inch or two of mulch in um, in the fall or winter, you know, when they decide to close up the greenhouse. That looks like a really sturdy greenhouse, like it's got lots of braces on it. Yeah, they bought it used, and it is. It is a real greenhouse. It isn't a high tunnel. It's, it's a real greenhouse. Um, all of those are um, rafters are real rafters and not just um, braces. And so, yeah, we can trellis those tomatoes, cucumbers. We're even trellising, and I don't know that this is going to go, but we're trellising those, those baby watermelon and cantaloupe on it this year, too, so we'll see cool. yeah but i'd like to show people um what yeah, a regenerative garden kale plants a regenerative garden could look like you know that's that's more it's outdoors it's in montana it's in the eastern montana and, and i love the walkways are those clover those are white dutch clover yeah and this is salary in the foreground right oh so, oh my gosh look at that yeah it's oh, it's as tall as a kale in some places <laughs> and then her carrots are the next bed over there not where the flowers are but the next one over and yeah so 
the key is not disturbing the soil and keeping a mulch on the ground. And planting something when you take something out, right? Like not yes. leaving things bare. Exactly. I'm horrible about that. Yes, I took out spinach. I feel like it takes me so long to get back to my bed, like even like weeding or yep. when I'm first starting a bed. Yep. Today we took out, we're taking out some beds that sleep in Buffalo and the guys are going to replant carrots. And we'll continue to plant carrots in there for the next month or so, maybe even two months. Um because really? we can go so long in there into the fall and those fall carrots are going to be way sweeter than uh, than a spring carrot can could ever be because the the carrots when it starts getting cold starts storing their sugars in the root and so that's why you shouldn't harvest your carrots other than when you're in greenhouse and you have to <laughs> um you shouldn't harvest them until it gets cold and then they start setting sugars into the root but um yeah, so diversity doesn't matter. Um, you know, it's really up to the gardener what they want it to look like. You, you almost get to be the person with the paintbrush, you know. Is, what do I want it to look like this year? Where, where do I want to put what, you know? But you have to have such vision and such knowledge to do that. Like, you and Mike can do that, but I struggle to do that. <laughs> well, you can put these, just... these, these, uh, these blue kale in anywhere and red kale. Put them in anywhere and you can't go wrong. You put them next to another flower, as those are marigolds in here in this situation. This, and next to an assertion, wow, they look fantastic. This year in my garden, I didn't take a picture of it because the sun was wrong, but there's um, zucchini. I've got three different kinds of zucchini. I'm kind of doing a test on them to see which one we like better because I'm trying to get them to go without water so they're not getting extra water. And then I put a trailing nasturtium in between each one of them. And oh my gosh, the trailing nasturtium hasn't even gotten big yet and already looks amazing because it's going to trail up right out into the walkway and all around us, these uh, summer squash. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I put some winter squash on top of the hugo bed. I didn't take a picture of that because the sun was wrong too, but on top of the hugo bed and I'm going to train it to go up into the trees because oh. there's other plants out on the ground on the sides of the hugo. And so I wanted to go get its sun from the tree side. And so I'm going to be pinning some of them up into the trees as soon as they get to vining. And, and you told me that we had put like winter squash in that corner of Mike's mm -hmm. mini farm where he doesn't really have anything growing and there's just kind of like rose yes. bushes and stuff there. Yes. Yep. Because um, like... that will help the soil, right? It'll help it. Yep. It'll help we'll have all that organic matter to put into the soil in the fall yep. yep and they do a lot of photosynthesis so they're feeding the, the microbes too and in a, in a true corner where it's just a really pain in most gardens we got a really tight corner or something i like to put comfrey i didn't take a picture of the comfrey plant but i've been harvesting comfrey lately and and um, it's getting on where i haven't harvested it's on um up to my elbows or higher that's just beautiful beautiful plant and you can't never have enough comfrey because either you're going to use it and turn it into a cream that's going to be a healing cream i use it all the time on my hands i use it on my face and its nickname's called bone net where it can actually heal bones and huh. so it's a plant that you want to be harvesting and utilizing that way but it's also a plant that's fantastic for the 
for the um, compost and for a drop and chop. So I'll cut it and take it and lay it next to the, any plants that need any extra nutritional help or if they just need more mulch and use them as a, a green mulch. And so I'll plant that right in these true corners. That's what's in this regenerative garden. They've got comfrey in the true corner where I'm talking about where it comes to a, a real corner. Where the, and you were saying that would be good with our apple trees down in the orchard, right? Yes, yep, definitely. I keep thinking we need to turn the orchard more into a food forest instead of just trees yes. with grass. Yeah. Ever since you've been here, I'm like, hmm. Yeah. I keep thinking, what can we do? Patty gave me all these ideas. Yeah, winter squash, you could train to go up those trees. Yep, yep, but definitely pair comfrey with any fruit tree. And uh, I did take a picture of fruit tree, but I didn't, I don't think I put it on here today. Nope, this is a tomato. From That's a the, tomato. Look at those tomatoes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they're huge. This was what I thought was the most productive tomato I've ever seen in my life. And we grew them the first year in that regenerative greenhouse. And um, we couldn't pick them fast enough. And we also didn't know what to do with them because we couldn't get the local people to understand that this green tomato was ripe because these oh. are these are green zebras and they turn this lemon color in that lighter green color when they're ripe but they're really ripe when that happens where you for a farmer's market you'd pick them with them just starting to turn a little yellow at the bottom of the tomato and pick them and, and market them then because they're going they're going to turn on their own really fast but they're they're a fantastic tomato and the pounds that these plants produce. So this year we only planted two of them. I put one at the sleeping Buffalo and one at my high tunnel in my house because we're like, okay, we, we know how productive they can be. <laughs> and they are so, so fast. Like they will be one of the first tomatoes that has tomatoes on it. And do they taste just like a regular red tomato or do they taste like a green tomato or they don't, a tomatillo or what do they taste like? They, they taste like a regular tomato, but they're more, it's hard to describe, but I would say more kind of minty flavor mm -hmm. to them. They definitely don't taste anything like a green tomato. They, they got a little zestier flavor to them than some tomatoes. You know how some tomatoes taste watery? Well, these guys don't do that. They, these guys have got flavor all throughout of them. But I was going to show you my apple, but I apparently didn't put it on the slide deck. So the apple, I just went in yesterday and took off all of the um, apples that were touching each other. So if there was a cluster of five, then I took the two out that was in the middle. So I have now three fruit instead of five. And kind of like you were showing me on the pear tree. Mm -hmm. They won't be they won't be bruising each other, and they won't. Um, knock against each other in the wind, they'll get bigger and the tree will be healthier. And the tree now has just put its energy to these three fruit instead of these five. And I'm, not, I'm talking about on one cluster because this tree's full of fruit, but now that energy is just going to those three. So I actually dropped the production on the tree by a third about. And the tree should be able to produce every single year instead of when it has that huge load it's taken all these reserves from the tree and all this energy to put into that whole load of fruit 
that it probably can't get all the way to ripe anyhow. So some of the some of the last flower blooms on this tree, the apples were really little yet, you know, where the others are this big and these were little tiny. I I took all those off right away, all the little ones off, so that it, it didn't have to put energy into those that probably won't make it anyhow. And the tree will be healthier, the fruit will be healthier, we'll have less pests because when we get those fruit banging together, then we're going to get some scars on there, and then that's going to invite insects into those, into that fruit. But the discarded fruit, I gave back to the tree. I put it all around the, where you it would did? naturally fall off the tree. I put it on the ground, and I'd learned this from the guy that has the greenhouse in Three Forks down there in Montana, southern part of Montana. Is that by Bozeman, Three Forks? Yeah, close to Bozeman. And so he actually uses about half the fruit to feed the tree. Wow. And so, yeah, he's a very, very sharp guy and just phenomenal amount of research. That's and that doesn't, like, crawl, like, bring in critters? No, actually, he's in a closed system. So um, as far as bringing deer or whatever... Is like squirrels or squirrels. birds or chipmunks. I have squirrels in my yard and in my, they come to my feeders, bird feeder. They don't bother anything in the garden. In fact, I've never seen them in the garden. We They're, had squirrels destroy our broccoli crop one year and I'm kind of like. Squirrels <laughs> or gophers? I don't know. Squirrels or chipmunks or something. <laughs> they like went in and like pooped on like every head of broccoli took one bite and moved mm. to the next one and took another bite and moved to the next one and pooped all over them and just, wow. Oh, I was so bummed. Somebody said, somebody suggested that maybe it was, we were having a really bad drought year and they were actually just like drinking the water off of the, in the mornings, the dew. I don't know. We haven't had as big a problem this year. We planted a lot of the broccoli closer to the house instead of in the mini farm. But it was like Mike planted me these most beautiful, delicious broccolis I've ever seen. And the squirrels just, it was so frustrating. And I just wanted to eat them and boil them anyway because it was like they hardly took anything. Well, you could have. You should have. I would have. I don't know. I talked to somebody else. They were like, no, you did not want to eat that. <laughs> You're good that you didn't. So I don't know. Uh, I think. I mean, I thought, it. I was like, why would it hurt them if I boiled them? But yeah. I don't if know. Boiling it would have took care of it. Mm. Um, this is another year on that regenerative garden. And wanted oh, to really so emphasize the, um, the pollinator planting that goes all the way around outside the garden. So there's a whole strip all the way around the garden that, that, that is for pollinators. And on their west side where they have a lot of wind, they've got tall branching sunflowers on that side. I see that over there. Yeah. And so well, they don't only just help with the pollinators. They bring in all kinds of beetles and spiders and stuff that are going to take care of other insects and other pests. You know, So as long as you've got a place for insects to live, they pretty well take care of their own world. They just need us to give them a place and get out of their way and not disturb them and not go running through it with weed eater or whatever, you know, so. 
and I always feel like for people that like, cause sometimes vegetable growing is hard. And if you live someplace where, you know, you have access to lots of fresh markets and you don't want to get into vegetable gardening, like a pollinator border is something you can do that will help the environment. It will help other people's gardens. And it's so pretty. And like, I get really frustrated when I go to the city and see tons of lawns and just think like, Oh, imagine if there was a pollinator border here. Yes, exactly. I think that's just so lovely. And like the first place I ever saw one was in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Grange up on the roof. Oh, nice. And so, I mean, you could do one anywhere. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I had a person contact me yesterday because I'm doing this coaching business, you know, coaching gardeners and farmers and stuff. And um, they were a farmer and they wanted to um, put in a pollinator strip all the way around their couple big hay fields. And so I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Um, the NRCS has got a program where it can really help them pay for it. And, um, and you can put in all kinds of edibles. I was at one the other day that the guy put a border all the way around his property and they were border, um, edibles of like um, American plum and elderberry raspberries, blackberries, currants, gooseberries, that it you don't have to think that it needs to be an annual flower. It can take care of itself and do some really good things. And so, yeah, fantastic stuff. So I want to show you this, Jackie, though, so that this was my latest compost. Look how dark that is. Yeah, and I've noticed that there are different colors in different batches, you know, so it's just a matter of, I mean, this is, this is screened, so it's, it's completely ready to go right out. I was wondering about that, because it kind of all, <clears throat> I don't want to say it looks uniform, but it looks like it's very, like, similar in size. All right, yeah, it went all, all went through a half-inch hardware cloth as a screen. And then, then I'm going to use it in my compost extract and, or tea. But I, I've been just extracting it. This is a tea, but you see the bag down in the bucket with the air bubbler. And so I'll put the compost in that bag and then just, um, I like using rainwater. If you can't use rainwater, then you can use water. Just dechlorinate the water. You easily just pour the bucket and let it gas off for a few hours before you use it or some people even put a vitamin C tablet in the water to get rid of the chlorine. But so you don't want the chlorine because they're going to kill the microbes. But so then put that bag down into the water and just massage that bag. And you'll just see the, the humic acids come off of it and it get blacker and blacker. And it's the microbes coming off of it too. And so it turns into this black, what we call a tea, but even though a tea T means that we would actually feed those microbes and increase the populations of them. We're not doing that. I'm just extracting them off my compost that I made. And then, then I use that as this drench out onto the, onto the beds. Um, usually about once a week or every two weeks, along with my worm casting and uh, any kelp. So your kelp's feeding your fungi and your your um, worm castings are just full of biology. So, so is this extract. So it's just putting lots more microbes out there into the garden and down in the soil. 
And you're going to go into this in more detail on July 18th when we do the composting webinar, right? Yeah. And explain all this stuff. Yeah. I thought like one thing I keep wondering, like after talking to Robin and talking to you, like how do you get the worm castings out of the worm bin? Yes. <laughs> Simple things like that. Right. But, so we've learned that it's best if you just uh, think ahead, let the worm bin dry out a little bit and then uh, put your food on one end or in one bin, depending on type of your, your, um, worm bin is and water where the food went guess what the worms are all going to go to that food and that water and then you can pick them up and put them into a different container or another bed or another bin and then then you have their worm castings so you oh. just put it through a screen i'm going to make a tumbler one but right now i've just been using hardware cloth to screen it you're going to screen it a lot finer than i do that compost so it'd be a quarter inch, maybe even down to an eighth inch um, screen on it. And then you're screening off their bedding that's not broke down. And then you end up with just the worm castings. <clears throat> and of course you want to let them dry out. And so if you, you, you've let your bin dry out slowly, right? You're slowly putting those soil microbes to sleep. If you dry it out super fast, then you're, you're just killing your, your microbes. So we want it to go through a slowdown of drying out. So that's why you just kind of reduce the water in your bin and then pretty soon you're not giving them any extra moisture to get those, um, that biology to, to, um, to go to sleep really in the worm casting. And then you wake it up when you put it in your water. So you don't even need the tea bag to get the microbes out of the worm casting because it just is going to completely dissolve into fertilizer and microbes when you put those worm castings in your water and stir it up. Oh. Yeah. So on your stackable bin though, your bottom bin is full of worm castings. You just take that bin and in, in your stackable situation, you don't even have to clean them. You just take them right out of there and, and um, I put and them. And we're going to learn how to make a stackable bin. We know people buy them. We're not going to learn how to do that on this okay. um, webinar. But on this webinar, I do um, plan to teach them three different ways to compost. One making like really, really great compost, like we saw in my picture with the black compost that we can turn into an extract or a tea. And then just making good compost with less work, not as much turning or maybe no turning. And then a third method that is takes more time but you just let mother nature do it passively you just you're just kind of set the table to make mother nature make you more compost and so we're going to learn those three ways to do it during the webinar because compost seems to be the key especially for a market gardener or anybody starting out and even for myself i'm still adding these microbes every so often to my beds and in the fall when the plants are um, breaking down and winter's getting ready to come on and I may put an inch or so of compost on top of my beds before I mulch it for the winter or just let the plant material mulch itself. I, I didn't clean my garden at all last year. Didn't, didn't take down the sunflowers or anything and they started breaking down when they did then I just crumpled them up, put them on the walkway. So some of my walkways is mostly um, kale and 
sunflower stalks, but they're breaking down really fast because I've got so many microbes in the soil. So when you have those two plants and they're not breaking down and they're touching the soil surface, you just don't have no microbes. That you need to get more microbes working in your system. As, as they do, they're going to soften your soil. They're going to hold moisture. They're going to transfer nutrients to your plants. They're going to do all kinds of beneficial things. We just got to not destroy them. So we've got to help them help us. So we don't till and we keep a mulch on top of the soil surface. And it can be a live plant or it can be a, a real mulch. And then it actually makes it easier on you too, right? Yes. It's less work that yeah. you have to do. Exactly. Bonus. Like you've seen in my pictures out there in the garden, I, I don't weed. There's nothing to weed. There's there's no space between stuff. It's just all beneficial There's no growing. space and the... The soil's not been disturbed and it's been mulched, right? So the, the weed seeds can't germinate, for one. They need sun to trigger them to germinate. So when you till, you're just throwing the triggers out there, say, have at it, start growing. And so when you are doing no-till and you're mulching, you're never getting that trigger to cause that weed seed to grow. The weed seeds are still there. I probably got just as many weed seeds as everybody else, but they're not germinating. Another thing that's going on is with communications with plants is there's nothing to, to communicate to that plant that it needs to grow. So it's an annual weed is getting told to grow, usually by the soil microbes or the lack of microbes in your soil, to heal the soil. So if I till, what am I going to get? Annual weeds by the millions. Right, so they're going to come in. Their job is to flower and put out thousands, if not millions, of seeds as fast as they can. Drop their leaves and their plant material on the soil surface to start building up the microbes and the soils, preparing the soils for the next generations of plants. When people go in there and and disturb it again. We've just asked for more annual weeds. If we stop disturbing it, then we go through this called plant succession where that we go from the annual weeds to our brachis family, so our kale and our broccoli and our radishes. They come next. So if you see mustard growing in your garden, they're part of that plant family. You're already moving in the right directions toward not having weeds when you have mustard growing. But people panic and see mustard growing and like, oh, I need to till. They go right back. They start to clock right back over it at ground zero with annual weeds again. So they're actually farming for the annual weeds. Right? If you just quit doing all that and the mustards won't come in until year two, sometimes year three, depending on how bad your soils are. And if you have not got a leaf litter on the soil surface. So that's why you mulch. You want to have plant material on the surface. And then once those mustards start growing, they lay down their leaf systems. They put sulfur into the soil, make it plant available to the next generation of plants. And then we can start growing our grasses and our tomatoes and our all of the plants that a gardener really wants to grow are all going to grow naturally because that's what's getting told to grow in the system. And that's where we want to live is in that situation 
And so in, in that situation in my garden last year, my weed was a tree, right? So that, that's the next succession is our raspberries, our brambles, and our, in our small or trees will start growing, right? So as soon as I seen I had trees sprout in my yard or garden, I knew that I needed to go back to the soil microbes that was living with my tomatoes and my grasses. So that meant I needed to have more bacteria in my compost. So the next compost I make, I made a bacterial compost instead of a fungal compost. And then I rebalance. So balance back now. Now I'm not having any weeds in my soil and very few trees because I, I keep trying to, we're trying to stay right in the sweet spot of growing vegetables with the soil microbes and the plants. And so that's what we're accomplished. And so, yeah, I, if I wanted to go add weeds to my compost, I'd have to go to somebody else's garden to get them. So if you never cut, like you harvest the kale and just let what's left there you just put like the next year you put a kale seed next to that plant like where it was well or? i do crop rotation right so oh, right your kale um your kale and broccoli family will heal most fungal diseases so your tomatoes have a lot of fungal problems. And so I like to foul my tomatoes with kale and that family. So the only place I don't get that accomplished very well is in the high tunnel because I don't have that very many beds in the high tunnel. And I really, really want to be growing tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers in the high tunnel. So it makes it a little bit harder. But I, I will put them in for a fall secession right? Underneath the tomatoes. The tomatoes are still growing, so I'll start tucking in arugula and, and radishes and stuff like that for the fall. I may not oh. get to harvest them, but they're helping heal the soil if there was any fungal problems. But if I detect a fungal problem or a disease in a tomato, I take the tomato out instantaneously. Pull the whole plant, mm. root and all, take it to the dump. Don't compost it or anything. I'll put some other plant in its place, right? Uh, beets are great for that work because the beets will help heal the soil and they're fast and I can eat the greens if nothing else. So right. where I'm taking out stuff right now, I'm putting in beets or carrots. Oh. So like I'm taking out spinach right now and then I'll just, I'll put in new planting of beets even if the beets don't make it i still got beet greens i still have something growing right in the soil i'll put in a lot of radishes i usually wait because they tend to bolt in july so i'll wait until the end of july plant the radishes and then i'll have fall radishes that i can i can use those to pickle on pickle them or whatever so that i can use them um, throughout the winter you know what i learned is that you can saute them just like beets yeah. Yeah, they taste. I eat a lot of radishes, but I like kind of the more purple white ones than the red ones for sauteing. Yeah. I couldn't find those seeds this year as much. The purple ones I love is called Bravo. And wow, are they fantastic. And they'll store through the whole year. I just took some out of my refrigerator now that was put the in last there last year? fall. Yum. Yeah. Yeah. And still just as good ones. as could be. And so I pickled it with some red ones. So it's really pretty 
there's red and purple and white in the in the jar so and i'll take those pickled ones out and i'll throw them in the stir fry too just put them in at the end and not not really cook them too much but yeah good stuff well patty thanks for sharing everything with us yeah, today this wasn't as bet. bad as i thought it was gonna be <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we'll see you on july 18th right and then so everybody sign up yes and we're gonna learn it's how gonna to be... do really good compost easy compost and then lazy uh, i won't call it lazy but let's call it where we don't have to turn it at all compost so but if anybody needs any help in the meantime they can get a hold of me with uh, the wisegrowerguru.com and i do a coaching service to help people it's been it's awesome yeah it's been a crazy ride as far as you never know i found more clients in my backyard than i have on the web for some reason that it's, it's crazy the word of mouth starts going and, and things happen but um yeah, all kinds of things from composting to a gardener that's never, ever gardened before to to lots of gardeners with flea beetle problems. <laughs> so, and it takes time, right? So these nematodes are not a one-year fix. It's going to take a couple years. Hey, where do we order those? Are the nematodes we're just, ordering? Wait, are we ordering? Yep, nematodes, beneficial nematodes. I just put in beneficial nematodes on the web, and there'll be two or three different suppliers. You can always find them on Amazon if you wanted. But what I do is I get a package of them, and I'll split the package into one or two or three different components. So I'm going to put out the package at three different times instead of once, instead of all at once. So like when a greenhouse gets them and they're putting them out, um, they're going to put them out. Sometimes they put them out every couple of weeks um, to, to fix their problems. And so it's a maintenance thing for them where the DOAs are putting out fresh nematodes. So they won't put the whole package out at once. They'll just kind of scatter it out throughout the whole summer. So I do the same thing. You just store them in the refrigerator. They're usually coming as dry powder and you mix that powder with some water. And then I dilute that with some more rainwater and then put it out in a drench can. So I'm not spraying them out. You can spray them, but I figure if I'm spraying them, I'm probably harming some of them. So I just use a watering can, drench them right out, and then water again. Um, like pre-water. I like to do it right after rain. And I always do it in the evening, right? Because they, they need time to get down into the soil. And oh, there's some like you know. sensitive, you don't want to have them out there during the sunlight so with all the microbes all the compost extracts worm castings whatever i put them out on the evening or really early in the morning and if it is in the morning i like to have it on a cloudier day right that just ensures that you're getting way more microbes living and doing what you want them to do for you than if you went put them out there at 10 o'clock in the morning you're pretty well wasted your time so yeah, oh, good to know. Yep, make sure you're kind of doing that, and get on a routine. I just pick out a day of the week. I kind of like Wednesday, so I tend to do mine on Wednesday evening, unless unless a perfect environmental day comes along, then I'll do them then. But um, yeah, or right ahead of a trip, if I got to be on the road for three or four days, then I'll put them out before I go. So yeah, let them work for you. I want to have extremely nutrient dense food, and so. 
the harder those plants are working for you, the more nutrient density you got it. Another thing too is people don't need to worry so much. Don't stress over the flea beetles and the cabbage <laughs> butterflies. You know, the broccoli is actually healthier for you because it's got holes in its leaves than if it was perfect and ready to win a beauty pageant. Because when it starts getting attacked by anything, that plant is putting up its defense system and it's getting stronger. It's putting more nutrients in its upper part of the plant which you're going to eat than if you just had a, a beauty pageant plant, right? So those holes aren't going to kill you. They might be hurting your image or something, but they're going to actually be healthier for you. So don't be afraid. See, listeners, she knows her science. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to tell everybody once again, we're going to talk about three types of composting on July 18, 2020. You have to pre-register. I'll have the link in the show notes. It's going to be $37. And there will be, like, you'll be able to watch the replay because there's going to be so much information. You're never going to be able to digest it all. And, like, when you're like, all right, I'm going to try this compost today, you can watch that part again or whatever you need. And just, it's going to be Penny Armbruster helping you we watch like there's like 45 minutes of talk and then there's questions and answers right yes lots of questions and answers yes and your garden will thrive and i know that anybody out there who's gardening this year like you said it's it's a booming year but also the weeds are growing and there's tons of stuff to do and um you're going to help us make that easier yeah, and remember that soil has got to breathe. So if it's been raining, you do not add water, right? The last thing you want to do is water when you had a lot of rain. or even And I like that deep watering thing that yeah. you were talking about more. It's making me wonder if I'm not doing enough watering, if I'm not, like, maybe I should get one area more each day instead of just trying to do every area a yeah. little tiny bit. Yeah, like I'll flood irrigate. Um, in my high tunnel in that regenerative garden is all flood irrigated and so 10 to every 10 days is the shortest amount of time or the I mean the longest amount of time I guess between watering uh, right now I'm going on my third week without having to water in the high tunnel right that's because, amazing yeah because it, it's not getting any rain in the high tunnel it doesn't right? get rain but it does um it's deep watered and it's on just a little bit of a grade. And so when it does rain, it's getting some from the outside that will gravity flow through the oh. soil profile. But in the soil profile, we have so much organic matter and microbes working. And I'm getting ready to add um, biochar to it this fall. Like I bet Thanks. next year, I can probably go toward a month without having water in that high tunnel. So once you, once you start understanding how to get that stuff working for you, you can let it work for you instead of you work for it. I bet all those people down in California are like, oh, that's what we need. Cause yeah, they sure don't, I don't think have a lot of the rain or at least in Southern California, like we have. So yeah. I Thank was, you so much, Patty. You are more than welcome, Jackie. And I hope everybody has a fantastic season growing the healthiest food possible and you're going to grow healthy. And if you want Patty to do a personal consultation, just connect with her at what is it wise grower guru yep dot com yeah all right signing off happy growing 
the amazing Patty Armbruster is going to offer the most incredible composting class you'll ever take completely online Saturday, July 18th, 2020. It's only $37 and you will get a seat. You will get a copy of the replay. You will get to pick her brain, question and answers. Um, We are just going to rock the composting. How to do composting the most efficient, effective, and best way to improve the results in your garden today. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.